Today's episode of Adaptations is made possible by the Community Oncology Alliance. They are a nonprofit organization dedicated to advocating for community oncology practices and, and most importantly, for the patients that they serve. COA is the only organization dedicated solely to community oncology where the majority of Americans with cancer are treated. For more about COA, visit communityoncology.org. Welcome back, folks. On the show today, Dr. Deborah Pat has so many fabulous acronyms in her credentials, you're going to fall over. She's an MD, PhD, MBA, and a fellow at the American Society of Clinical Oncology. She's also the executive vice president of Texas Oncology PA and a clinical professor at Dell Medical School at the University of Texas at Austin. She's super smart. She's super cool. And she joins me today to talk about burnout and screenings, and COVID, and what it's like at three in the morning for her when she loses a patient. How does she manage herself? So Deborah is also on the board of directors of the Community Oncology Alliance and is a leader in the space to make sure that 80% of this country that is diagnosed in rural America gets what they need to live their lives on their terms. We had a fabulous conversation, and I really hope you enjoy all the things that we talked about. Let's get started. Deborah Pat, P-A-T-T, welcome to Out of Patience. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. My first question to you is, how the hell do you have so many acronyms after your name? <laughs> um, I've gone to a lot of school, Matt. Are you one of those perpetual students? I'm not. I think I'm done. Because I want to break these down for the listeners. So MD, we know. Right, medical doctor, PhD. We know doctor of psych, psych, doctor of philosophy. Right, that's what PhD means. What was yes. that in? Public health. Okay, F A S C O. Yes, I'm a fellow of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. I didn't know they got there with acronym. That's good. Okay, <laughs> MBA. We know. So you've been informed by pretty much every sector of society. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, actually, Matt, I use every degree that I have every day in how I try to bring patients to cancer care. Well, we're going to talk about that because you are a bit of a unicorn. I mean, I did my stalking <laughs> and research on you and it, it's quite fascinating. But I always ask the Thank first you. question, you know, if you are a doctor and someone asks if there's a doctor in the house, you actually are that doctor in the house. Have that Has that ever happened to you? Yes. Um, so I feel like I have resuscitated a number of people in a um, in a public scenario where my official role was not as a physician. That is extraordinary. But, you know, yes. So uh, though I have a great story to tell, I was um, at an event where there was someone who collapsed on a runway and um I'm married to a cardiologist, you know, a pediatric cardiologist, but um, her um, her heart stopped actually. And uh, my husband and I performed CPR on her and um, they had one of those um, automated defibrillators there. And she, uh, 
he, it said she had a shockable rhythm. So, which he kind of didn't believe because he wants to see the rhythm, you know, because he's a cardiologist, but he shocked her and uh, she is fine now. It's 10 years later. She is now a mother of a beautiful little girl. So I will say that that's, you know, it's sometimes good to have a few doctors around. <laughs> I'm going to agree. I wish I had more back when I was diagnosed in the 1990s. <laughs> so did you realize as a kid that you wanted all these acronyms after you or did you like go to college for, I don't know, like liberal arts? No, um, uh, I was a science major in college. Uh, I thought that I wanted to do sort of bench to bedside research. Mm-hmm. Um which was less about being a clinician and more about um, sort of the investigation of using science to eventually bring tools to others. And uh, when I was in medical school, we um, I was at Baylor College of Medicine and, and it was 1995 and they just started a program where they put you in clinic right away. And um, uh, it, which isn't typical. Typically, you would go two years of sort of college-like basic science courses, and then you would go into clinic. But we went into clinic right away. And I was at Baylor in the MD-PhD program. I'd done bench research, um, molecular biology research in college, and I was ready to have that to be my career path. But I met a woman who was dying of metastatic cervical cancer. And uh, she had metastasis to her lungs, uh, lung nodules from her metastatic cervical cancer, and this was not a problem of bad science, right? We have good science. This is essentially, in most parts of the world, a preventable disease for many. You know, with good screening and now even primary prevention with vaccination, meta- metastatic cervical can- cancer is largely preventable. But she was Mexican um, and she didn't have good access to health care in Texas. And so it got me on, it put me on a different path, really, because I realized with all the best science in the world, sometimes there were policy barriers that prevented patients from getting access to the care they needed. And I felt like that would be a better path for me. I mean, we're, you just jump right down the rabbit hole <laughs> with that answer. Like, we can really get into how do people know things exist in their language, in their culture, on their terms, and who is the first voice and face they see, is that even remotely solvable? You know, it is. I think that getting the right care to the right people is always a challenge, clouded by lots of barriers. But there are some barriers that um, that can be solved. And frequently, there are public policy pivots that you can make to have patients um, have access to better care that provides for them uh, the, a better likelihood of a good outcome. I was at a, um, a trade show a week ago as of this taping, and it was for a company that, in, in my version of their definition, they're kind of like the president's advance team for rural health. They're the ones that go out to the community, make sure that the primary care doctors speak Spanish or are relevant to the culture or have an understanding of the best way to build that trust with that unique community so that they do get the access they need because otherwise, you know, Medicare won't cover it. And I think that's a decent incentive to have. But do we need those advanced teams in rural? I mean, you're in Austin, which is not really rural per se, but you've had experience in the rural areas. Yeah. So I'll say in Texas, Matt, as you may know, we have over 30 million Texas residents but we have about 5 million Texas residents that don't have health insurance coverage. And so the natural consequence of not having health insurance or having other barriers to care is when you're diagnosed with a cancer, it tends to be not found by screening, but tends to be more advanced. And when you have a more advanced cancer, it's more likely to lead to higher morbidity and mortality related to cancer, 
less chances of cures. And so, so you have to do more to get less in, in terms of um, in terms of outcomes. So it's a real challenge. And so, as I say, a policy pivot. Know that um, Texas is in its legislative session right now. And some of the policy considerations that they're thinking about right now, and the House just approved the budget um, this last week, um, is to change the Medicaid program to provide emergency Medicaid for breast and cervical cancer patients to increase eligibility from 200 to 250 percent of the federal poverty level and to make some considerations for patients with um, colorectal cancer as well. So those are two pivots that would allow more people to have access. And it's a complicated issue and it doesn't fix the problem, but it, it's a band-aid that helps the problem considerably. And so while that's a complicated issue and, um, uh, and you know, it's not 100 percent fixed, it, it helps. Um, so as I mentioned, sometimes there's policy uh, changes that can be implemented to try to help patients get what they need and have better outcomes. Right. Like the history lesson here is, you know, in the 90s, there were four drugs and now there's 40,000 drugs. So even right. if they get in at the right time, we're in like hyper decision mode at this point now. I guess the question right. to you is, how do you keep up with all the stuff that keeps piling on <laughs> in a good sense? It's such a great problem to have, but we, I do think that we drink a little bit from the fire hydrant in medical oncology, where um, the pace of drug approval is just so rapid. Um, it's, it's a great problem to have. It means we can offer more to more patients. I think different doctors manage it differently. Um, uh, we have many doctors in our practice, so I'm a, I serve as a vice president of Texas Oncology. Many of the doctors in our practice are in clinic all the time, and so they're sort of keeping up. There's not a day without homework. Just so you know, when I said that school stopped, you know, it doesn't mean learning stopped. You, as a doctor, you have to learn every day, and as an oncologist, you have to learn a lot every day. But I myself actually just see breast cancer patients, and so I, I isolated my practice to breast cancer because I led a lot of our breast cancer research, and that allowed me to have greater proficiency over a smaller um, over a smaller area of of medical oncology. But um, but but a lot of people just they have to stay educated every day. It's a never ending sieve. I can only I mean you can only sponge so much, right? Yes, I mean it, I'll, I'll, just as a perspective, when I was um, finishing my fellowship from MD Anderson in two thousand six. And um, uh, lung cancer predominantly was treated frontline with chemotherapy. Now, over half of lung cancers have molecular targets that can be um, uh, treated really as a frontline preference most of the time. So people with advanced lung cancer. So, you know, it's it's ever-changing, but it's, it's a great problem to have. I mean, thankfully, we continue to have a rapid pace of innovation in cancer care. We need it. So we go back... You know, each of us decades enough without making it sound too old to the 21 year old listening right now, which <laughs> is that prevention used to mean different things than it does today. Yeah. Yes, diet and exercise will only do so much. You can only stop people from eating Arby's with the commercials, right? Vegetables are more expensive than, than French fries. Well, this is our country. You know, we kind of have to just accept part of that, which is not okay. But like you said, like today, you could kind of go to Walgreens in a sense and get screening tests or I think 23andMe help people like, oh, it's a gift for Thanksgiving. Like <laughs> the ancestry tests were like the thing you got for your birthday. Are we moving at a pace where people, maybe not all of the people will want to learn if they were at risk before they even become patients? Is that a thing that you're seeing a trend for? 
Yes, uh, we're certainly seeing a trend of more informed healthcare choices, though some of the mainstays of prevention, things like healthy diet and exercise, are still key components that um, lead to longevity and certainly improved outcomes in cancer. But you can have the healthiest patient with the best um, diet and ex- exercise regimen and still have them get a bad cancer and in, and sometimes not do well with that cancer. So, But it is preventative. And so the, the regular things work. But yes, we have a more informed consumer base now. And so our consumers interact with healthcare differently. Many of them will get some kind of commercial risk understanding, whether it's from a program like Color Cancer or 23andMe or, or others. Um, and, and I see a fair bit of those patients because some of them are at high risk for breast and ovary cancer, as well as other cancers. And so then we d- have to discuss how to, how to manage that risk. I think that actually our ability to understand that and incorporate understanding of risk with risk reduction models continues to improve over time you know, what is the role of early detection? It's not, is it, is it in five years from now, not just going to be things like mammogram or mammogram and MRI in the appropriate person or colonoscopy for colon cancer, but uh, a serologic test, um, you know, it's likely that's in our future somewhere. So before we go to break, the question that, that naturally occurred to me was, you know, back in the 2000s, the breast cancer communities were just trying to get screenings down to 40. And if your mom or your aunt had cancer, you were already predetermined to understand your risk. Are you seeing this? Most people coming in are neurotic in the right way that do I have it? Can is, I don't know how to frame the question better, but you understand what I'm saying? Like the at risk might be the first in the door people to see that. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. I think that some people have that reaction that they understand that they have a, a familial predisposition because of their history. And so they're interested in testing because if they knew what to test for, then they could test for it and understand how to mitigate their risk appropriately. I think, though, there's just the same amount of people that say, I don't want to know, you know, that even their sister and their parent has an identifiable high risk genetic mutation. And they say, you know what, I'm just I'm not going to choose to live my life that way. And I don't want to know. So I think it goes both ways. So it's kind of an over under. (laughs) <laughs> I think more over than under. I mean, I think more people are taking this information that could empower choices and using it to empower those choices. But there's still uncertainty, too, because, as you know, when we have uh, an understanding of genetic risk, it's um, it's a it's a risk model. And so not everyone that harbors even a large number of risk will go on to get cancer and also those that don't have an identifiable gene that we would characterize as average risk might go on to get a cancer. And so, you know, there's uncertainty in the model. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Dr. Deborah Pat. This podcast is made possible by the Community Oncology Alliance, who wants to remind America that it's time to screen. The pandemic set many Americans back in their regular cancer screenings. But you can take it from me, Matthew Zachary, and the countless experts I've had on the show that getting screened for cancer is really, really important. Look, it's not just the right thing to do, but now's the right time to do it. 
So if you or a loved one have questions about cancer screenings, visit timetoscreen.org. That's timetoscreen.org. On the website, you'll find answers to all of your questions about doctor-recommended cancer screenings and help finding local options near you. So hey, America, that's you. Check out timetoscreen.org today. All right, Deborah, you mentioned before the show you have kids. Yes. All right. As a doctor raising them, did were they, was there something wrong with them every day? No, uh, but lots of medicine discussed at home. <laughs> I was going to say, like, what did your pharmacy cabinet look like in your house? You know, it's interesting. So my husband, um, my husband has is also the child of two doctors, and uh, his his older brother's first word was insulin. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, it, it does bias things. Uh, you know, our, our dinner conversation is different probably than most people's. Well, my wife's a speech therapist, so and I have a 13-year-old boy and a girl, twins right now. And every day is like, uh, do they need an IEP? No, they're fine. They're fine. <laughs> <laughs> they're just fine. <laughs> yeah, my kids get a lot of medicine. But it's interesting. They've, uh, uh, you know, they're old enough to sort of be a little bit on their know what they're going to do professionally. And um, it, it sprinkles in their life in interesting ways. So it's fun. So let's get to that MBA, right? A master's in business administration. One might not conflate an oncologist with an MBA. Can you talk about that? And how has it informed you? Sure. So um, I, I can recall when I decided to go to business school, I was sitting um, in uh, the hospital, our local hospital here, and talking to one of the hospital administrators. And I kept being an advocate for some investments in the hospital that I thought would improve the quality of care. And he kept uh, using terminology about return on investment and capital expenditures. And I thought, oh, we are not speaking the same language and he's probably not gonna go to medical school. So one of us has to cross the bridge. So I really went to business school to be a better collaborator and to figure out, and also in my own organization, I was asked to look at pro formas or um, business development, and I wanted to be better at it because I went to school for a long time. I'm used to knowing things quickly, and I didn't like spending time on things and feeling uncertain about it. So I wanted to develop the appropriate proficiency to be a better collaborator because we have to work with a lot of partners to provide great cancer care to patients in their communities. So um, I went to business school and and I will say it has accomplished that. I, I feel like I'm a better collaborator. I'm able to more efficiently look at things like pro formas. I also am much better about increasing the value in the room as opposed to um, collaborations or negotiations being very black and white and transactional. Um, so I think it's been better for us and I, I use it every day. So let's talk about the Community Oncology Alliance. I've known of COA for a very long time. Our mutual colleague, Matt Farber, I worked with him at ACCC. And I learned that, oh, it's not just the feds. <laughs> the states matter too. Sure. What's been your experience with COA? Um, as a Community Oncology Alliance is an amazing organization that really helps us as community oncologists find solutions to continue to make cancer care in people's communities sustainable. Um, so because of some policy issues, um, side of service disparity, the financial incentive that is the, the 340B program for many hospitals, community oncology um, practices, private practices, which are a lower cost side of service have really been at risk. And COA has been an incredible sounding board and an advocate for us to have sustainable solutions to continue to be viable practices in our communities. And so 
you know, my my it's really my extended family in uh, COA. Uh, their uh, their leadership and the other members of the board. I'm privileged to sit on their board and I serve right now as their vice president. Uh, really, you're my family. So whenever I have questions, I text them and call them. Um, I've already had two texts text with um, other doctors from other states this morning about what they're doing about managing problems that we have in the clinic. So it's just an incredible resource that's really been laser focused around providing great cancer care in communities. As a result of demands of community oncology practices, they developed a, a pharmacy um, uh, alliance. They developed a patient-facing uh, group. So it's um, been a tremendous resource for me. So it's like a private club of like life hacks. How did you get through this? Exactly. How did you get through that? Like Scooby-Doo problem solving all the time? Exactly. Do you mind talking about burnout? No. I had a gentleman on the show recently named Gabe Charbonneau. He's a private practice guy in Montana. Perfect. In like this small town. And he started the movement called fightburnout.org. I take every chance I can on this show to mention fightburnout.org. Have you seen this? Has it affected you? Like I always ask like at three in the morning when you go home after a day when a kid dies, what is that like for you? Yeah, I will say um, I went into oncology because I love having relationships with patients over many, many years. And so I'm very close with my patients to get very personally whenever they have bad outcomes. It's hard. Being an oncologist is hard. And it's hard sometimes because patients may not have the outcomes that you want them to have. And it's hard sometimes because, you know, sometimes you know exactly what they need and you can't get their insurance company to give it to them. And it's uh, so so it's hard on a number of levels. Um, uh, it ha poses challenges every day, but it's also inspiring because, um, you know, that patient that I had to fight for her to get chemotherapy and her chemotherapy completely eradicated her cancer. And when I see her pathology report that she had no residual cancer left, I know that her chances are great for having a good outcome. That patient that comes to me uh, pregnant with her first child while she has a new breast cancer, terrified that, you know, something is going to have to give and she's going to have a bad outcome. And I can see through her breast cancer treatment and to the you know birth of her new baby, um, happy and healthy. Like you know, seeing people's dreams become reality is the inspiration that helps you keep going. In those situations, is it fair to say that they're lucky to have found you? And in many cases, they don't have a Deborah Pat at their <laughs> disposal. I will say, I think I'm very good at what I do. I went to school for a long time to be very good at what I do. But I'm amazed by the doctors um, that I know. I'm amazed by the doctors in my organization at Texas Oncology. I'm amazed by the doctors that I meet at COA. I think oncologists are amazing. And so uh, so while I like to think that I'm uniquely qualified to help people, there are a lot of amazing oncologists out there that are uniquely qualified to help people get through their challenges of the day. And I think as you help patients navigate those challenges and some hurdles that you may not get over, it's easy to chip away at um, at burnout. To your primary question, I think that I think that it um, it takes a toll on you, and you have to find ways to balance that in your life. So I do do specific things to try to balance that in my life. I mean, just general, I think self wellness um, uh, issues. I could try to exercise. I try to have some time with my dogs and my coffee in the morning. I, uh, it's part of the reason why I do my administrative role for the practice, because whenever the little problems are taxing, I want to take a step back and work on the bigger problems. 
to solve issues for the practice. Um, and that's kind of an investment in long-term job satisfaction and hopefully a good long-term outcome for our practice. Yeah, we forget that you have people reporting to you. You're running a company, you're running a business. It's as much as like, how are we doing in terms of what we need to do Hippocratically, but how are we doing in terms of, like you said, morale and relationships? And is that where the MBA came in handy, or w- it, which one of your acronyms does, come in best it, for that? It does. Um, and so I'll say, like, a problem that we have at the moment and that we've had during COVID. Um, well, COVID in and of itself was a problem, which I'll say the management of burnout was not so good there. It was unprecedented stress. But coming out of COVID, we were dealing with our nursing shortage. And so to work with our incredibly talented director of human resources and say, okay, how are we going to deal with this? Where do we have shortages? Can we survey them to understand, is this a compensation issue? Is it a, is it a work hour issue? Is it a gratitude issue? You know, um, is it some component of all of those things? And, and how do we approach that to, um, to help the organization navigate through this nursing shortage better? And I think that was incredibly helpful. So as if the listeners aren't already in awe with you, um, you're a lobbyist. <laughs> You've testified before, uh, I think, the federal and the Texas legislature? Yes. What was that like? Did you have to go through training or you just have the good negotiation skills? Um, uh, I've gotten better at it over time. I was really nervous the first time I did it. And now I realize after spending a lot of time before our elected officials that generally speaking, and this is maybe overly simplified, but generally speaking, our elected officials are public servants that come from a myriad of backgrounds that don't know a lot about healthcare because maybe they were salesmen or engineers or lawyers um, before they came to public service. And my job is really to teach them enough about cancer care so they understand the policy at hand and they understand how that policy can help to bring appropriate cancer care to patients. Because if you ask any elected official, Matt, they are not going to tell you that they don't want to provide great cancer care to their constituents. They all want to promote good cancer care. But cancer care is complicated. I I went to, um, uh, I I spent time in federally and at the state level, and um, I can recall sitting in an office of one of our elected officials here in the state talking about a policy that influences our ability to provide chemotherapy in our office and make last minute dose changes. And he literally said to me, so chemotherapy, is that like lasers? Oh, God. (laughs) Which it's not. It's not. And so, and I only say that not to poke fun at him, but really just to say that cancer care is complicated and our elected officials frequently don't uh, don't know a lot about it. And our job really is to provide as much education as it is advocacy to try to make sure that patients can get what they need. It, it's kind of like mixed. It's kind of like mixed feelings, right? I'm I'm happy they didn't go through any cancer in their life, so they aren't informed. But like God bless them for not having all that horribleness happen to them. But at the same time, we're in the same position as like finding a peer, you know, someone who understands what you're going through. And and squaring that circle. I mean, one thing I learned when I did some stuff in D.C. was, you know, the government's run by 22-year-old interns and staffers, right? You got to get through them to get to the lawmakers. And, like, if the lawmakers do not have the lived experience, how do you get them to understand that? Have you learned any secret Ocean's Eleven tactics 
Well, what I'll tell you actually is meeting with those 22-year-old staffers is very critical because frequently they're the ones drafting and um, championing various different policy initiatives. And so I think that actually many of our elected officials that are very effective depend strongly on their teams. And so making sure their teams have the right level of engagement, I think, is really critical. And I think that, you know, we have to have a presence because um, healthcare is expensive and if we don't advocate for appropriate cancer care, the natural consequence will be that patients will not have access to great cancer care in their communities. And that would be a tragedy. It would be a tragedy, you know, that um, that you and I are both personally familiar with. But there's not anyone that doesn't know cancer. Like maybe they didn't have it themselves. There's not anyone that hasn't been touched. Like someone, you know, someone that they love has had a cancer because cancer is common. And so educating our elected officials about how to provide great cancer care becomes critical because then they're able to make more informed policy choices. Well, I think the name of this episode is Chemotherapy Isn't Lasers. <laughs> that it's not. <laughs> no, it is not. So let's let's spend the rest of our time talking about screenings because that's always been like the the I don't know, the syllables of the day. Yeah. But it means different things now than it used to when yes, COVID was an ebb tide that showed all of the stuff and we've done so much work understanding what the data sounds like, but to the average human that just wants to live their lives. You mentioned this before. I just don't want to know. What is the yeah. modern day conversation like? I will say that COVID has changed things. So as you probably know, we recognized early on in COVID that there was a decrease in screenings and a decrease in diagnoses and a decrease in appropriate treatment. And the natural consequence of that is that people presented later stage, higher chances of morbidity and mortality. But I will say things haven't exactly right-sized because there's so many disruptions in the cancer care ecosystem. I will say for the individual healthcare consumer, there are disruptions. So as an example, I had um, a patient who is uh, an African-American woman, single mom, daughters, busy helping their daughters manage the, the, um, the pandemic-related anxiety, depression, getting back to normal, busy working as the single provider for her household. And she knew something was wrong with her breast, but getting it investigated took a back seat to these other competing priorities that were screaming at her. And so people have to prioritize their healthcare again. And in an environment where there are multiple other screaming competing priorities, I think that's a real challenge coming out of it. So now you still have people that are managing other aspects of their life. We have uh, some some pent up demand. We have um, supply chain shortages, some in drugs, some in availability of things like testing. When I order a CAT scan for a new patient who I know has cancer, I'd like for it to really be done in a week. Sometimes it can take six weeks because of availability, because of staffing at the center that does the CAT scans. So these are all issues that are complicating cancer care, even coming out of an environment to one that's more normal. We have these new problems. Well, I will give a shout out to your website, timetoscreen.org. How's that going? It's going really well. So uh, uh, we in COA um, and my brethren in COA, the, the other practice leaders in other states, mentioned that we were observing this decrease in screening. We said, we need to do something about it. And my first thought as a researcher is, oh, let's characterize it. Let's study it. 
And so we did that and we published it. Um, but then we, we needed to do something about it. And Cancer Care, which is a, a nonprofit organization that supports patients with cancer, was great and came to the table and said, we're going to have a campaign, a time to screen campaign, and we're going to partner and we're going to develop federal public service announcements and state public service announcements. We had Patty LaBelle as our spokesperson and got the word out that people needed to screen. And also, and this is really important for Texas, had a phone number that people could call to identify ways that they could afford to screen, um, ways in which they could, um, uh, that, that were feasible. So even if they didn't have health insurance, it would identify places where they could go to get appropriate cancer screening. And so they, that campaign is still running, but I mean, they did really tremendous work in collaboration and, um, and getting that done to heighten awareness, which was really important. Well, I'd like to again thank the uh, Community Oncology Alliance for making this interview possible. I think we just became best friends. Doctor, <laughs> Dr. Deborah Pat. By the way, do you ever get Deborah and you're just like, there's no O? <laughs> Sadly, my mother named me Deborah D-E-B-R-A because she thought the other way would be difficult for me to spell. <laughs> so the unintentional concatenation of Deborah. Yes. Yeah. All right. You are the executive vice president of Texas Oncology PA, a clinical professor at Dell Medical School at the University of Texas at Austin, and you are the vice president of the board of directors of the Community Oncology Alliance. Did I get that right? Yes. All right. I wish you more acronyms. Thank you so much for joining <laughs> me on the show. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate your help. Out of Patients with Matthew Zachary is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. It's mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message anytime at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-AUDIO-66 to share your healthcare shitness with us. And we might just play them on the air on a future episode. For more information about this show and Offscript Health, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.